A story they're writing today A wall that they're climbing You can carry the past on your shoulders You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville Where the pastor is Pastor Ricky Rueda Grab your Bibles and read along Now here's Pastor Ricky We are back in the book of Matthew, and last week we covered Jesus calling Matthew actually out of the tax booth to follow him. And as we see Jesus call Matthew out of the the tax booth, we did see something interesting is that Jesus desires relationship with those that he calls to follow him. We see this contentious conversation that the Pharisees would invoke. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus reminds them that he came as he is the Messiah to heal those who are sick. And he encourages them to learn his heart and the things that he desires. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And he encouraged them to go learn that. And here in these next couple verses, we would see something, we're going to see something similar today that Jesus desires relationship over ritual. That he desires that we would abide with him in real time. And so as we look at Matthew chapter 9, um, verse 14 through 17, we're going to see a message entitled, Where's the bridegroom? Are we aware of where he's at? So if you're in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, would you say amen? Amen. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worse, and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so that both are preserved." And so here, we see Jesus continue to encourage a sentiment of relationship. And the first example he gives us is this bridegroom, and it made me think about a wedding reception, obviously, as it lends to that. And whenever you go to a wedding, it's obviously followed up by the reception. And the reception can be an entertaining and great and fun thing, but it's entirely dependent on the bride and bridegroom. I don't know how many of you have ever been to a wedding reception when whatever it is that they're doing takes too long, but the entire event comes to a halt, or if they leave too soon, everybody kind of wonders, what in the world am I doing here? Um, Because everybody gets dressed up, and it's kind of like being a kid again. Actually, there is one aspect of this where you go to a wedding reception and you're told what you're going to eat and are kind of told you're going to like it too, like you don't get to complain. Because when you go out to eat, nobody ever orders the things that are served at a wedding. But anyway, you're here 
and you're at this event and all eyes are on these two. But when the two aren't present, it can be a strange thing. I remember my wife and I's reception. Our wedding was just kind of, it was a shotgun wedding of sorts, if you guys know our testimony. Um, but our wedding reception was a little strange as our photo shoot took way too long. And uh, my wife's bridal party um, became slightly distracted by all of the uh, firemen who were outside next to the photo shoot, and they had to take pictures with them. And so everybody was left inside waiting because they had to get pictures with them. Um, and then you come inside, and it's kind of this awkward moment of, hey, where you been? We've all been sitting here for, what was that, like an hour, hour and a half at least? It was, it was way too long. Because the focal point was gone. And so here we see Jesus reminding them to keep their eyes on the most important thing, to keep their eyes on the bridegroom. And what we're going to see today and what we should ask ourselves, and this will be one of the final questions, is are our eyes on the bridegroom? Are we aware of his presence, where he's at, where he's active, where he's blessing us or not blessing us? And so here, right at the beginning, the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So the first thing we see, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they come asking this question about fasting. Now, as we look at this, <clears throat> you have two different parties that are brought up, John's disciples and the Pharisees. Now, as both of these practiced fasting often, I think it would be silly to assume that what they accomplished in their fasting was the same. Uh, many commentaries, Guzik's in particular, would note that John the Baptist's disciples would accomplish humility in their fasting. And then as people looked up to them and looked up to John, they would learn what it is to have an appropriate posture before the Father. But then the Pharisees often would just accomplish pride and they would accomplish attention and they would try to impress themselves and impress others with their righteous behavior. But they come to Jesus and they say, hey, so we're fasting, we do these things regularly, why in the world are you not fasting. And so we taught on this a while ago, and so I'm going to share some of the notes, but if you are interested in learning what fasting is, if you go back a couple months in our teachings, we have one specifically on it, but a couple notes from it. We have to ask today, well, what is fasting before we look at the answer? Well, fasting in the Greek is nestuo, and that is to abstain as a surrendered practice to God from food and drink or from other things as we learned a couple weeks ago, whatever it is that distracts us from focusing on the Lord or on Christ, we surrender it for a season so He would have our undivided attention. And while it's not a mandate for us, it's a tool given by God for us to know Him more and more intimately and so that we could also be prepared to, or be prepared for the attacks of the enemy. And so as we look through Scripture, I'm not going to give every single Scripture reference, but every time we see Scripture or fasting in Scripture, the focus is always on the action of God. Is that as we approach fasting, if we approach it with the intention to do better for ourselves or to hype ourselves up or to lift ourselves up, the intention of our fasting is already wrong. When we see fasting in um, 1 Kings, we see that 
God provides Elijah, provides for Elijah in his weakness. In Exodus, we see God provides miraculously. In Daniel, we see God desires a humble practice and that he actually turns the tables on the wisdom of men there. But God is glorified through the action of fasting in all of these. But how does it benefit the believer as we approach the Lord in fasting? It reminds us first that men shall not live by bread alone. One of the first and most important things that especially our faith in the West is that we, we do live a fairly comfortable life. And any time our comfort is removed from us, we equate it with some kind of suffering and we equate it with something going wrong. But as we remove comfort and as we remove distraction, it reminds the believer that God is sufficient and sustaining in all things. It reminds us to not be defiled or distracted. It heightens our awareness of our need for Christ. In me dwells no good thing. On our best day, our righteousness is as filthy rags. It also heightens our awareness of the spiritual battle. This is an important one. Oftentimes we forget that we try to make every battle a tangible thing, but oftentimes things aren't going our way because there is an enemy who is trying to deter our worshiping and working for the Lord, that there is somebody trying to convince us and keep, keep us away from glorifying God. And as it heightens our awareness, it heightens our awareness to pray against the enemy that is working against us and working against others. It cultivates a nearness to God. It brings us to the realization that He, in fact, does love us and that He's holding us and caring for us and that we abide in Him. It allows us to be ministered to by God. Rather than caring for ourselves and relying on the care of others, it makes it so that we have to be wholly surrendered to the care of the Father. And then finally, it forces us to let God do the work. And I think a lot of us men can relate to this, as a lot of us are doers. We like to fix things. We like to, when there's a problem, present all the answers to it. It's an often, <laughs> our wives often complain about when they come and share about with us, or share with us the the hardships of their day, they don't want to hear answers. They just want to share with us how things are going, but we're quick to deliver the answer as if they don't know the answer. But it forces us to remove ourselves from the situation and let God do the work as we see in Scripture that God is, in fact, a way maker for us. As we weren't designed to be way makers for ourselves, but to let God do the work and we follow in His footsteps and fasting forces us into the posture of following the Lord. And so that's what fasting is. <clears throat> and so when they come to Jesus, they're like, hey, this is something that we're practicing regularly. They understand the benefits of fasting. Why are you guys not doing this? And then he provides them this answer. In verse 15, if you're looking at it, it says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. His answer is, you have no reason to mourn right now. So the first point we see is that the bridegroom, Jesus, is present with them. And as we read this particular comment, it's really important to remember 
what Matthew's focus is. And for those of you who've been tracking with us for a while, like, man, you bring this up a lot, but it's important. The book of Matthew is focused to remind the Jewish people that Jesus is, in fact, the awaited Messiah. And more specifically, the disciples of John, as they were following John, would have been inclined to focus on this particular thing almost more so than others. John the Baptist was known for two things, preaching a message that required repentance, as God requires us to, but also being the foremost prophet of the time because he's the only one who actually got to see Jesus come onto the scene. And so John would proclaim that Jesus was coming, and then when Jesus arrived, he was able to say, this is the Messiah who we have been waiting for. So you have been fasting and you have been praying for this thing to come all of these years. And Jesus is saying to them, this ministry was absolutely necessary, but the reason you're fasting, the answer you have been looking for is standing before you right now. There's no reason for you to fast because the answer for your fasting is sitting right in front of you. And so it's important to remember those things as we look at this comment, as this would have been profound, especially for the disciples of John. They would have seen all these things, heard these things, but they needed to be reminded of the fact that Jesus was the one that John had been pointing to all this time. Second, don't let religious repetition keep you from seeing what God is doing right now. Jesus is encouraging them to celebrate the current work that's happening today. Not literally today. I think Jesus is doing a work today, but in their time. Fasting for now wouldn't be beneficial as your answer is presented before you as you speak. Remember, as we looked at all of the reasons to fast, all of these things are so that we would draw close to the Lord so we could feel His presence, but also so that we could see His direction and see His answer. And so for them to fast would actually separate them from the currently present Messiah rather than walking with him. Is instead of doing that, Jesus is saying, walk with the bridegroom now so that you can see all the things that you have been praying for. And we should note that Jesus isn't condemning their desire to draw close to the Lord, but he is saying that if abiding with God is what you desire, then you need to abide with me. And guys, this wasn't part of my notes, but that probably is the most important note today. Is that there are a lot of us, when we come together, we have big thoughts. And it, they're good thoughts. Like, wh who is God? What is God? What does He desire of me? Who is He? Well, if you want to know who God is, then you have to know Jesus. He is a clear representation of the Father. He is the one who advocates for us. It's the Holy Spirit who's been given to us by the sacrifice of Christ that we would know who the Father is. And so there's a similar encouragement today that as we seek God, and I think it's safe to say that most of the world does in fact seek God, the answers vary in what kind of God they find, but if you truly seek God, and you truly want to know who you are to Him, it is Jesus you must abide in. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the vine. 
He is true life. He is our water. And so if God is who we desire and God is who we seek, then it is Christ who we must follow. Because you will never see a clearer picture of the Father's love than you would when you were walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus is proclaiming to them, I'm right here. And so for you today, if that is you, Jesus is right here. Jesus is alive today. He's not dead. He's risen and alive. We'll get to that. I know this isn't Easter, but we should proclaim that, that message to ourselves each and every day. We don't pray to a dead God. We pray to a living one who conquered sin and death. That's the most encouraging thing we could hear. Kids are awesome. My son won, if anyone was watching. He beat him to the door. But what an encouraging thing these brothers must have heard at this time. Is that, yes, I know you desire this thing that you were practicing for a reason. But before you go practice it, I don't want you to miss the most important thing that I'm doing work right now. That if you abide with me, just put the fasting on hold for a minute because you're going to need it. But right now, Jesus is here. And so the applicable points to this, what does it mean? Our righteousness or their righteousness, but righteousness in general, isn't increased by praying and fasting when the answer lays clearly before you. Now, what do I mean by that? Are we looking for answers or might we be looking for problems in a time when there aren't any, when this is a time of blessing? And this problem, this thing that I'm getting ready to present before you, doesn't, isn't more of a problem with any age. Everybody does struggle with this one. It's oftentimes an issue of pride and an issue of selfishness. But it's amazing how common this tendency can be. The let me pray about it or let me, let me bring these things to the Lord before I give you an answer or before I actually choose to follow through with what I need to. And I, I honestly, myself and the leaders probably get to see this the most as we have people coming to us, but it really is incredible how often a clear answer can be in front of somebody, but because they don't want to do it, we know the Christian answer is, well, let me pray about it or let me pray on it. How many of you have ever heard someone do that? And you know when they say, well, let me pray about it means they, oh, I'm just not going to do it. But it's nicer to say, I'm just going to pray about it. It's almost the equivalent of the Southern, oh, bless your heart. Like, no, 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 I know what that means. Like little kids, like all of our little kids know when we say, I'll think about it, they know what that means. Probably by age six. They're like, when they say, I'll think about it, that just means no. They just don't want to say it right now. But ignoring the obvious can be horribly detrimental to us. And let's be honest, before we step into this next section, is that there are times when we know what the Lord is calling us to, we just don't want to do it. And we can use prayer as a tool of deflection rather than a tool of surrender. And we need to be careful that we're not utilizing this blessing, this spiritual gift of prayer, as a means to keep ourselves away 
from our call and life of service. Our call and life of following Christ in all places at all times. It can lead to the rationalization of sin. When we see a clear answer in front of us and we walk away with the flippant answer, I'll pray about it. Oftentimes we're not going home to pray about it. What we're doing is to mull over and contemplate how my actions are justified in a situation. How is it that I can spin this so it seems less problematic? How is it I can spin this so that I'm not the one who's wrong? So that when I come back, I can say that I did pray about it and I have an answer. You didn't pray about it. You just wanted to figure out a way for you to be right. But the age-old comment I would throw out there is you can be right, but if you do it the wrong way, you're still wrong. Are we truly prayerfully considerate? And then it can postpone our obedience, which ultimately removes God's blessings from us. And what does that mean? Is you know what? If you have a clear answer in front of you and you go home to pray about it and you come back in, in earnest obedience, that's great. But if we have a clear answer and we postpone our obedience, you have to think about all of the ways God intended to bless you if you had just obeyed in the first place. You'll still be blessed in your obedience, but you still missed opportunities to see God's faithfulness in your life. You still missed opportunities for God to use you right here and now. It's funny, as we're coming about this, I was looking at notes as I pulled up my old fasting notes. And the last time our church spoke about fasting, who remembers what we talked about? Who remembers what we actually urged the church to pray and fast over? Now you guys are mumblers. What'd you say? There we go. Okay. We prayed about the building and we fasted about it. For those of you who are newer here, what that means is that we knew that we were in a situation as a church that we had all of this square footage and we had these expenses and we knew that we were not honoring the Lord with how we were working our finances, how we were utilizing this space. And so we were looking to figure out, Lord, is it that you have us here? Would you have us go somewhere else? And the Lord present, we, what we thought was the Lord was presenting a few amazing opportunities for us to move into a different building. But as we fasted and prayed, as we were slow to make decisions, the Lord took those things away. And then he turned, he, he cultivated this um, ministry and nonprofit co-op that's happening at the front now. As you go in there, as people come in, again, for those of you who don't know what's happening, is as people come in the front doors from 9 to 2 to 3 o'clock every afternoon, there's all kinds of different services that somebody can um, get to be discipled in the Word, to have help finding a home, to seek help for those that are homeless and for those who are um, mentally challenged at the time, depending on what those may be. For those who are downtrodden, they can be assigned a helper in town to make sure that they can go and get the help that they have. All of these things happen now here within our roof. But none of these things wouldn't have happened if we hadn't take the taken the time to fast and pray. And so fasting and prayer is absolutely amazing. But when the Lord provided answers, and our leadership can tell you, once we knew what we were supposed to do, it happened really fast. I remember we sat down and we talked with Tom. Where's Tom hiding at? Tom. 
actually Justin too. Tom and Justin were part of this thing. And we sat down and we drew something out. We were like, okay, here's what the Lord's provided for us. And when I sat down with these brothers, as they were faithful to move as God directed them, I thought the answer was going to be, we'll start construction in a month or two. No, that wasn't the answer I got. It was a, let's start next week. And I was like, I need time to buy supplies first. You can't build something with nothing. We're not God here. Like, chill out. But in two weeks, these guys had started a building project that wasn't on our scope at all. And what's happened is that already in these past couple weeks, and for those of you who were here one Wednesday, I told you you were going to have to hear about this again. We've already been able to provide people with jobs. We've already been able to help people keep their lights on. We've already been able to help people get the things that they need and be discipled in the word through yours, the church's obedience to follow the Lord. And it's exciting. Can I just say this? It's exciting to get into a section of the word like this, which can be and should be extremely challenging, but to see that our church is walking in obedience and to be able to say thank you for you guys serving the way that you are and to be able to say that it isn't said of our church that we're not obedient, but we're seeing the fruit of our obedience and what a blessing, so thank you. You guys are amazing. And that's all the nice things I'm going to say for the day. But that's it. But for real, thank you. It's a blessing to be able to come to this and see that we have a church who's seeking the Lord's face and is willing to move when he calls us to move. But if there's any of us here who are inclined, when we see clear answers in front of us, to have that flippant moment of, well, let me pray about it or let me seek the Lord. And not in a positive way, but in a negative one. We have to remember a few sections of Scripture Hebrews 13, 1 through 2 tells us, let brotherly, or let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. As these moments of service that we've been provided are not only opportunities to glorify the Lord, but they're actually opportunities that we have to minister to our Savior to minister to those that he cares and sends our way, to minister to those that he loves. These are ways that we worship in real time. As oftentimes we emphasize the music aspect of worship, but worship is in fact a lifestyle. Worship is the way that we live life every moment, and worship biblically is service. But then we get to 1 John 4, 20 through 21, It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom whom he has not seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so we bring that section of Scripture up and why. I'm sure there's somebody in here who's like, Pastor, are you equating our lack of service and our lack of hospitality to a lack of love. And what I would respond to that question is, do you think the Lord and those he loves feel loved by us when they are so far down our list of priorities? Is this not, I don't need to answer that question. But when we say we love the Lord foremost, Do we put the Lord foremost in the things that we need to accomplish? 
When we say that we love the Lord, do we put those whom he loves at the top of our priorities as well? Because oftentimes we abandon service for this thing of comfort that we spoke about in the beginning. As we go home and we pray about like, Lord, I need you to really show me time that I can take away from my schedule to serve. But really, if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes the time that we need is absolutely obvious. It comes with the time that we watch our television. It comes with the time that we do different things that aren't necessarily important, but we choose those things because they do provide comfort. And if that's you today, hey, I would encourage you to pray about that. How can I make sure that I'm not prioritizing myself over the Lord? There's repercussions to our actions when we walk in this kind of, and I think the most blunt thing is that we have to admit is that that's selfishness. And we're called to be selfless in all things. I've heard it talked about how, self, how selfish from the older generation the next generation is. And what's funny, my generation would say the same thing of the next generation. This, this trend seems to continue. It's like, man, they're so selfish. They're so self-involved. They don't see anything. But I think the hard thing to consider is that these generations have learned well from the previous one. Our children are learning to replicate the things that we have shown them as more important to us. Our children have learned to prioritize the things better that we taught them to prioritize. These generations that are self-involved are self-involved because we've taught them to be. And today as we recognize Father's Day, as we looked at that quote that fatherhood is supposed to be most central so that we could teach others what it is when we communicate the gospel to be wholly surrendered to the Father. To be wholly surrendered to the Father is to be wholly submitted to the Father's will. And the Father's will is that we would serve and love one another in the most selfless way possible. And so we have to ask, are we teaching this next generation that we're so quick to complain about what it is to be selfless? We're very good at pointing fingers, but we often forget that the things that we despise most about another person are the things that we thrive the most in. Are we, in fact, selfless in the way that we live? Are we, in fact, full of service and worship to the Lord ourselves before we would try to point somebody else in that direction? Paul doesn't say, follow the Lord as I'm pointing you in that direction. Paul would say, follow me as I follow after Christ. And so for those of us here, are we able to say, follow me? Are we surrendered? Do we know where the bridegroom is? And so here, he's told them, there's no reason to mourn as the, as the bridegroom is present, but there will be a day. And what he means by that is he knows and he's foretelling of his, his death on the cross and his resurrection into heaven that he's going to go and prepare a place for them and for us. There's going to be a day when fasting is going to be absolutely necessary. There's going to be a day when the only way that you can abide is to fast and pray, that you would draw close to me, but that day is not today. And then he goes on to give them more clear explanation as to what he means. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. 
Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but the new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Jesus is providing a sufficient answer already, but he follows up for further clarity, but it's still the same point. Stop trying to force last or different seasons into this one. So here he gives us this example first of the cloth on an old garment. If you guys have ever tried to patch a garment before, you typically are going to have to, if you don't buy something that's pre-shrunk, you need to shrink it first. Because if you just put something new on an old cloth, when you put it through the washer and the dryer, it's going to shrink. But the problem is, You've put it on a garment that already is, and so as it shrinks, it tears all those fibers away even worse. This thing is not for this. It has to be prepared for this. And then he goes on to bring up the wineskin example. When they would make wine, they would pour unfermented juice into a wineskin, and as it would become fermented, all the gases and everything would expand, and the fresh leather would grow with it. But an old wineskin is already set and it may even become deteriorated. And so as the gases expand, this thing would burst open and all of it would be for naught. And so for him, <clears throat> he's saying, this isn't the time for you to apply the old things to this new thing. And I want to remind us as we move into this is that Jesus isn't expressing some form of heresy. In Matthew 5, 17-18, what does it say? It says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so that's, he's not implying anything here that's wrong. Jesus is still functioning and is being obedient to the old law. He's simply saying that their reason for fasting isn't necessary or present at this moment. And again, even preparing them for this time coming that they will need to do these things. But something that we need to consider today, and this is something that I think every church struggles with, we need to not try to force the things we're used to into something Christ is doing right now. We need to let Jesus, Jesus' newly provided loving grace reside and grow with this new mind and spirit that he's provided you. If you're new to the faith, you're not going to be able to apply the old things of the world to who Christ is. And then if you're walking with the Lord for a long time, it's funny, it's funny as believers, we can have the same mindset as somebody who is stuck in their high school glory days, is we can remember God doing an amazing thing at a season and keep trying to forcefully recreate that thing without ever considering that the Lord might be doing something new and trying to keep doing that thing over and over and over again. But the Lord's not in it. In either way, we need to be considerate. Are our eyes on the bridegroom? Or, more simply, are our eyes on Jesus? He's reminding these disciples at this time to stay wholly gazed, wholly focused, wholly attentive to him. And you will have everything that you need. The provision that you seek in fasting is available in Jesus in front of them. 
The provisions that you need in life are available and sufficient in Christ. There are differences from then to today because Jesus isn't physically standing in front of us, but through the Holy Spirit, we can experience the same closeness with Christ. And now I'll preface this. New is not always better. The bridegroom is not always present for every event. Going back to the wedding ceremony example is that when you go to attend one of these, the bride and the bridegroom aren't always there. But if you would ever notice, whenever those two are not involved, nobody really cares about the events that are going on. There's not the same life that exists in that event when those two aren't present. And again, when those two leave, the party dies. It's over. Like, oh, well, they're not here. I don't have to be here anymore, so I'm out. The same thing happens spiritually. Is there a lot of people trying to do a lot of new things, but if Jesus isn't present in the thing, it's not worth being at. And the same goes for the old. Yeah, absolutely. God may have absolutely been working in that way and in that fashion for a long time. But if Jesus isn't there, we need to pray about where he's standing now so we can be there. Church, we are required to be prayerfully considerate as to where Christ is so that we would know where to walk, so that we would know where to serve, so that we would know how to love, so that we would know how to glorify him and evangelize in all things. I remember I was reading, I believe it's in the, um, oh my gosh, it was Chuck Smith's about Calvary Chapel, the distinctives. And he's talking about how they used to have these big concerts outside of their church. Um, there's, a fo- there's a couple of folks here who, who know probably more intimately about those events. And they'd host these big evangelical concerts and there would be droves of people who still came, who would come out to these and people were coming to the Lord. But at a certain point, they would host these events and people were still coming But the leadership could tell that Christ wasn't working through those anymore. And so while they would still be able to host an event who by all metrics on paper should still be hosting the event, they just called it. Because they believed that they shouldn't spend their time, effort, and God-given resources on something that the Lord wasn't using anymore. And brothers and sisters, that's a hard decision to make, especially when you're enjoying something but we have to make sure that we are wholly surrendered to the way Christ would have us do things so that we would see His blessings and not the world's. Calvary Chapel is an interesting thing because the Lord has allowed Calvary Chapel to be at the forefront and really see things come afresh that the world hadn't seen before. But if the, world's got, if the Lord's going to keep using Calvary Chapel, then he can't, we can't just keep doing things the way that we used to. And that doesn't mean to walk away from the Word. I'm not saying that. We teach the Word. We teach it through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's His Word, His rule. But when it comes to the events, and it comes to the stuff, those things are second, maybe third or fourth. We're here to serve the Lord first and foremost. And as God is creative, as he created everything that we see, following him is exciting. 
And Jesus is serving in all kinds of different ministries. But when we as believers are seeking the Lord, we have to ask, wherever we are, is the bridegroom present in that place? Are all eyes focused on him? Are we pursuing religious endeavors just because we're supposed to, or are we actually seeking him out in all things? Are our eyes on Jesus? It's a simple and short message today, but it's an important one. We can get caught up thinking that we need to do X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z can be good. But if we're doing them just because we're supposed to, it may not be as beneficial as we think it is. We want to make sure we're behaving in submission to the Lord in all things. When we're walking in submission, your prayer life will grow exponentially. When we're walking in service, our times of fasting will be sweet and beneficial. When we're living a life of worship, our eyes are going to be on Him at all times. We will truly be able to say, follow me as I follow after Christ. And not because we want the attention, but because we want people to go where the Lord is going. Amen? You guys are quiet today. The kids are not. But with that, that's our question for today. Are our eyes on the bridegroom? Are we trying to make old things fit into a place that they're just, that they're just not supposed to? Are we truly surrendered? So why don't we stand and pray as I invite the worship team back up here.